Joffre, who will wear a hero's crown, who will be the one just like Washington when the European war is done. In my mind there's just one hero, Woodrow Wilson's name will live forevermore, for there's no doubt of it, he kept us out of it, and he's the My name is Philip Davis. I am the uh, director of the Eccles Centre here at the British Library, the Eccles Centre for American Studies. The Eccles Centre was founded by David and Mary Eccles to act as a kind of interface between the library's collections relating to North America, the US, Canada and the Caribbean, and those who are interested in it, scholars, students, teachers, the interested public. In bringing awareness of that collection, which is the finest collection of its kind anywhere outside of the USA to those audiences. We do our own stuff, and I hope you'll come to some of that, but also we regularly work with esteemed partners. And one of those partners that we've worked with regularly has been the Rothermere American Institute. And we're very pleased that this uh, event also fits into that connection. Chrome Radio is a new partner for us and have been brilliant at putting this event together. We're very pleased to welcome you to the British Library Knowledge Centre on behalf of the library and of the Echoes Centre. But what I want to do now is to hand over to Vivian Harmsworth, who is going to move us on to the next section of the event. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here this evening. I will start by mentioning why we're interested, because Lord Northcliffe was born Alfred Harmsworth and was thought to have known the Americans better than most of his generation. And in doing so, he warned others not to be complacent in their thinking, in thinking that they knew him, because Americans are very complex in character. And I think that held him in good stead with his dealings with the Americans. Northcliffe travelled to America no less than 22 times concerning the production of newspapers, and on January the 1st, 1901, he edited the New York World, at the invitation of John Pulitzer. He made all the journalists turn up for the evening in dinner jackets, which showed a bit of class. <laughs> His interest and love of America has been passed down through the generations of the Harmsworth family, and when Sir Hugh Strawn and Katrina Ollivant, on behalf of Chrome Radio, visited Claudia Rothermere and mentioned a podcast on the Americans' entry into the war in 1917, she had little hesitation but to recommend to the trustees that we accept and do it. And that is what we've done. I think the entry of the United States into the First World War was the most significant event at the beginning of the last century, because without it, history would have been dramatically changed. However, the very complex diplomatic, political and emotional dilemmas which faced President Wilson and our own government are certainly not well known to the British public, and I have a feeling that they may not be terribly well known across the Atlantic. Those who listen to the podcast will hear these three factors brought to life through the voices of the characters involved as a result of the painstaking and accurate research led by Katrina and a very skillfully written script by Martin Wade. I congratulate her and all those involved in the production of this podcast. It was the educational value that clinched the deal, and I very much hope 
that the documentary podcast will be available throughout the world, or certainly a large part of it, because that is the future. Easy to access, easy to listen to, and very valuable in an educational field. So thank you very much. Now we pass straight on to our panel so that the evening's events can begin. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And thank you too to Vivian Harmsworth and above all to the Rothermere Foundation because we simply wouldn't be sitting here or marking the launch of the docudrama had it not been for the Rothermere Foundation. Katrina Oliphant of Crane Radio and I, my name's Hugh Strawn and I'm a historian, thought when the centenary of the First World War came round that there was an opportunity to use primary sources in order to explain some of the the major events uh, and events not just on the battlefield but perhaps more importantly because they were being neglected the events in the context of international relations diplomacy and politics and the event tonight is designed to mark the launch of the first of those enter the peace broker in order to to lock into a series which were the subject of an essay program I did for Radio 3, which charted what we have called the long road to peace, not ultimately ending, of course, until 1923. The First World War lasted long after the 11th of November 1918. Now, we're going to divide this evening into three segments, three parts. You will see to my left, Dr. Alice Kelly, who is Vera Harmsworth Postdoctoral Fellow in the History of the United States and the First World War at Oxford. And to my right, Dr. Phillips O'Brien, a historian of American foreign policy and professor of strategic studies at the University of St. Andrews. We are going to have a conversation about aspects of the road to American entry to the First World War and its significance. Then there will be a chance for you to enter the discussion. Now, the first, the parts today, is perhaps the familiar question in any discussion of Anglo-American relations, which is, is there a special relationship? The special relationship itself is a phrase that belongs later in the history of Anglo-American relations, but was one, of course, which in the First World War would have struck a chord in terms of how Britons at any rate understood the United States. However, Successor Spring Rice, the British ambassador in Washington, uh, better known today to many of you, I suspect, as the writer of I Vow to Thee, My Country, now much abused at World Cup rugby events and so on, but then, of course, associated very much with the First World War. Successor Spring Rice wrote to Arthur Balfour, the Foreign Secretary, in December 1916, in his weekly report to the Foreign Office, and I'm quoting him, the danger is that we should imagine that because we have a common origin, the British and the Americans, with many Americans, talk the same language, read the same books, and profess the same democratic principles, that we are any the less foreign. So was there a special relationship? You're going to hear now a clip from the docudrama, which takes us back from December 1916, when Spring Rice wrote those words, to February 1915, when Colonel Edward House, Woodrow Wilson's advisor, was en route 
to the United Kingdom and you will hear first of all the voice of Lord Northcliffe himself. Daily Mail, February the 2nd, 1915. The crew of the steamship that was sunk by German submarine U-21 on Saturday have returned home. The submarine, commanded by Lieutenant Otto Hersing, is still in the Irish Sea. And three other submarines, all of them obviously German, have been reported in St. George's Channel to the south of the waters where U-21 began her exploits. The Berliner Tageblatt, commenting on the attack, said, the German people will hear the news with great pleasure, as England seems to place her main hope on the starving out of Germany. As they deal with us, so we must deal with them. February the 6th, 1915, on board the Lusitania. The voyage is soon to come to an end. It looked as if we might perish, so fierce was the storm. Despite our great size, the ship tossed about like a cork in the rapids. This afternoon, as we approached the Irish coast, our captain decided to hoist the American flag, and this created much excitement. Though the Lusitania is a fine ship, we don't claim it as one of our own but the captain had become greatly alarmed at the possible threat of a German submarine and raised the flag in order to reduce the chance that we'd be torpedoed. Because of his concern, he mapped out a complete program for the rescue of passengers, the launching of lifeboats, etc., etc. But under the stars and stripes, we're arriving safely. Thanks be to God. Colonel Edward House has reached Britain's shores. He's the president's right-hand man, his advisor, though he has, by choice, no ministerial position. Whether he's really a colonel or not is uncertain. But his motives are good, we're told. He's here on an unofficial quest to bring peace to the world. He'll visit Paris and Berlin, as well as London, talk to politicians, talk to the great and the good. He can talk to me if he cares to. Uh, the chief here. Find out where Mr. Edward House is staying, will you? House. President Wilson's man. Just arrived. Suggest to him that a conversation with Lord Northcliffe might be high up on his agenda. When I see him, I'll tell him that we're all for peace, but not at any price. A negotiated peace sounds like defeatist talk to me. We'll win in the end. I'm certain we will. And my newspapers are playing a crucial role in securing victory. Right. So, was there a special relationship? Was Britain 
a foreign place to America? And from the British point of view, was the United States foreign? Phil O'Brien. Well, in many ways, there was no special relationship, and yes, it was foreign. But I think a lot of it is because our view of what the United States or how the United States acts towards the United Kingdom comes out of the Second World War, and therefore we sort of push it back to the First World War. There is an extraordinarily close relationship in the Second World War, and if there is a special relationship, it exists then. But what exists between 1914 and 1918 is that you might say of countries that can communicate on a more intimate level than many countries simply for linguistic abilities, but they do not do anything that they would view as not in their national interest. When the United States government makes a decision, it is not in any way guided or only minimally guided by sentiment. And for most American people, of course, they're no longer of English or Scottish or Welsh background. You know, that is now a, a small and declining part of the United States by 1914. You have many more Americans from other parts of the world. So there isn't that sentimental uh, blood tie to Britain that somehow would govern American views. So I would say, no, you know, Britain is a foreign country to most Americans. Uh, they might look at it as slightly more approachable than other countries, but they certainly wouldn't look at Britain as a country for which they must do special things to help it out in a moment of crisis. But there is at least a common language, even if we are two countries divided by a common language, to repeat the usual cliché. Yeah. And one of the accusations regularly leveled in American circles is it's precisely that ability of language to provide a point of entry, which has resulted in the argument that actually British propaganda was overwhelmingly important and unduly influential. Ellis... I would absolutely agree with that, and I think that British propaganda was important in bringing America into the war in both formal means through the War Propaganda Bureau, which we know more commonly as Wellington House, and through more informal means, such as Lord Northcliffe and his newspaper Empire. So I'm going to very briefly talk about the media and propaganda landscape of Britain and America at this time. The mastermind of Wellington House was Charles Masterman, and he employed a number of British writers to write his propaganda for him. These were people that we all know and read, probably. H.G. Wells, Arthur Conan Doyle, who else? John Galsworthy, Rudyard Kipling. And these people were all writing propaganda that was going out to the American people. Wellington House was directed mostly outwards, outside the British nation and towards America. So one particularly important moment was the Bryce Report, which came out in May 1915, and was particularly important and influential in America because of it coming out in the wake of the Lusitania disaster of 7th May. The British Propaganda Bureau also played on this by getting access to the commemorative coin that the Germans produced in the wake of the Lusitania disaster and reproducing hundreds of thousands of copies. So I would say they were very, very important. Then combined with this is the rise of the daily newspaper, which happens in the 1890s, a period where we have rising literacy rates in Britain due to the Education Acts, the Forster Act of 1870, the Butler Acts, and we have an increased infrastructure for developing and disseminating this information through the railway networks and through printing technologies. 
So Lord Northcliffe comes in at a very important moment. In 1896, he begins the Daily Mail, and that becomes a very important voice for disseminating propagandistic views, both within Britain and outside of Britain in America. So I would argue that, yes, it's very important. So the Daily Mail itself is having an impact in America as well as in Britain? Yes, I would say so. Can I add briefly to that? I think that clip was very important because it's not so much creating a pro-British view. It's creating an anti-German view. I mean, when we talk about it, it's not fostering a special relationship, mm -hmm. this propaganda. It's creating a destructive view of Germany. So it works perhaps in a different way than people might think. That's something that Lord Northcliffe was very involved with as well. He was proposing virulent anti-German sentiment in the pre-war period. And what also happened in this period was the development of atrocity propaganda, which was eerily similar to the development of the newspaper in that it worked through sensationalist headlines, through catchy, attention-grabbing lines, through pictures. So these two worked hand-in-hand hand to promote entering the war. I think there's an important distinction here, too, between what Alice first described, which is Wellington House and the role of what we would see as opinion formers mm -hmm. trying to inform other opinion makers, particularly in the United States, and the role of Lord Northcliffe, who was very often both in Britain and in the United States, presumably, speaking directly to opinion itself. The Daily Mail speaks to a public, whereas the highbrow, if you think Conan Doyle's highbrow, but the highbrow writers are writing for the newspaper editors or the politicians themselves. And Phil's point about hatred for Germany, of course, ties exactly in with Alice's point about Lord Bryce. Lord Bryce's report of German atrocities in Belgium was precisely to the point, and if you look at many American posters after the United States entry to the war in 1917, and perhaps one of the most famous ones says, remember Belgium. They continue to play the Belgium theme, and Bryce had the added authority of himself having been ambassador in the United States. The United States, you heard a reference from Alice, you've heard a reference to the Lusitania, because Edward Howe sailed across the Atlantic on it three months beforehand. Lusitania itself was sunk in May 1915, and many th people thought, including House, that this would be a moment when the United States might enter the war. In reality, the United States does not enter the war for another two years, the centenary of which we're just marking on the 6th of April 1917. And Britain then responded by creating a new American mission to run alongside the embassy in Washington, precisely because the Entente war effort, the Allied war effort, the war effort of Britain, France, Russia to a lesser extent, and Italy, had become so dependent on American orders over and above, if you like, traditional diplomatic missions. The first mission was headed by Balfour, the second by Lord Northcliffe himself. Phil, how effective do you think the mission was and how effective indeed were Balfour and Northcliffe? They are effective in opening lines of communication, but I think this is actually the moment where we show the weakness of the special relationship discussion in American policy in the First World War. When the United States comes into the war, interestingly, it refuses to call itself an ally. I don't know if anyone's read the treaties, the Versailles treaties, but they are actually signed between the allied and associated powers. There's only one associated power, and that's the United States. So it actually does not want to call itself a former ally of the United Kingdom and France at that time. 
And whereas Balfour and Wilson get along, they don't get along as well as Balfour thinks, because House is telling him Wilson's happier than he is, but that's a smaller point. <laughs> yeah, House has a very different view, I would argue, from Wilson at this point. But what is most telling for Wilson is probably something that doesn't help the relationship, and that's the secret treaty revelation. This is when Wilson is told that the United Kingdom and France have signed treaties with Russia, with Romania, divvying up a lot of European countries. And Wilson first gets to see those treaties as part of the Balfour mission. Now, look at the 14 points. What is the number one point on the 14 points? There will be no more secret treaties. So if we can say, actually, the Balfour mission, if anything, I would say, confirms in Wilson's mind that the United States is fighting the war for a different reason. Yes, what Wilson called open diplomacy, this argument that the war would not have happened if there had not been secret diplomacy, which is a big part of the argument here in Britain, too, with the Union of Democratic Control. Balfour's success, of course, is linked in part to something we now forget, which is the idea of a British foreign secretary traveling to Washington. Sir Edward Grey, British foreign secretary in 1914, had never traveled outside Britain in his entire life. Did he just go to Paris in 1914? He didn't like to live Berwickshire. No, well, well, (laughs) he was a great birdwatcher, as we know. Balfour is a consummate politician, highly regarded, former prime minister, and he travels to Washington. That in itself is a signal of the importance of the relationship from the British point of view. What about Lord Northcliffe's contribution, Alice? I think this passage in Lord Northcliffe's career is a really fascinating one. In 1917, in February, Lord Northcliffe's house is attacked by the Germans in an attempt to assassinate him because they know how politically important he is, like somebody trying to assassinate Murdoch today. Fortunately for us, they don't kill him. Unfortunately, they kill his gardener's wife and their child. The end of May 1917, after the Balfour mission, Lord Northcliffe is the surprise choice of Lloyd George to go over to the US. Lord Northcliffe has been agitating in his newspapers, in the Times and the Daily Mail, in the early months of 1917, about the two main concerns, which were the food crisis in Britain, which would lead to increased rationing, and the financial situation, which was getting worse and worse. And what happens when Northcliffe goes over to the US is that he's a surprising success. So he gets the mission on the 30th of May, he leaves on the 2nd of June, he arrives on the 11th of June, and by the 12th of June he's meeting the press and setting up daily luncheons. So he really embraced the publicity side of the mission. And on the 16th of June when he meets Wilson, Wilson is pleasantly surprised by him and finds that although he'd been expecting a political ogre, or some kind of terrible businessman, he finds him actually an incredibly likeable character. What Northcliffe does, which is the main success actually of his mission, is he manages to negotiate the financial side. He manages to team up with his counterpart from France and negotiate $185 million in American credit to essentially save the war at this point for the Allies. So what he does is a very important thing. The only fly in the ointment for him is that he has... Problems with Spring Rice, Cecil Spring Rice, who doesn't particularly like him, thinks he was a bad choice to come over to the US. But on the whole, when he leaves the US in November 1917, he's praised. He's 
quite widely acclaimed for his work in the US, which has included the financial work and a lengthy, lengthy speaking engagement going across the US to the West Coast. He wasn't a particularly good public speaker, but people embraced his enthusiasm. The Americans said, we wish we had our own Lord Northcliffe. And on his arrival back in the UK, he's praised by Lloyd George for the work he's done. So surprising success from the Murdoch of his day, I think. And of course, it really underlines the point that for the Allies at the beginning of 1917, before the American entry, the situation had been dire. In November 1916, the Federal Reserve Board had warned American investors that they were overcommitted to the possibility of an Allied victory. As a result, there was a run on the pound and British borrowing, which was effectively cover for the borrowing of all the Allies, was suspended until April 1917. After April 1917, the Allies know that they have the resources to win the war because the United States is in this war. If they can hang on long enough, for sure, they can outmuscle the central powers. We're going to move on to the second part of our discussion, which we've called Pursuing the Dream. And this reflects the point that Phil has already mentioned, which is Wilson's distaste for secret diplomacy, his distaste for war itself. Wilson is an extraordinary, reluctant warrior. In January 1917, on the 22nd of January 1917, Wilson delivered a speech where he called for peace without victory. And the challenge he confronted by the end of 1917 is that that hope, a peace without victory, was something which had been taken over by the Bolsheviks. After the Second Russian Revolution, the Bolsheviks had published the secret agreements between the Allies. Wilson was already aware of them and revealed to many that actually maybe the Allies were not as pure in their approach to this war, were not so obviously fighting for democratic and liberal values as they claimed to be. And now it was the Russians who were proposing peace without victory rather than the United States. Wilson's response to this in January 1918 was to announce the 14 points. The very first of those included the principle of open diplomacy, but they also included the principle of freedom of the sea, the idea of open trade, what we would now call free trade, the possibility of disarmament, the idea that a lasting peace would have to be built upon the principle of national self-determination and possibly national self-determination by democratic powers, and finally, the suggestion that there should be a League of Nations. We're going to hear now a clip in which Edith Wilson, Woodrow's second wife, describes the process of putting that Peace Without Victory speech of January 1917 together and the reactions from Edward House and also Walter Hines Page, the very pro-British US ambassador in London. Edith Wilson didn't go down terribly well with Edward House, or Edward House and she was not as close a relationship as the relationship between House and Wilson, and became something of an obstacle to House in his dealings with the president. Who may never return again? 
has been turning over in his mind an idea for one more effort to stop the war before we should be drawn in, or before national hatreds deepen and make a durable peace impossible. His statement, which he intends to read to the Senate, is addressed not only to the belligerents, but to all peoples. He makes an appeal to the conscience and common sense of the world. He asks for peace without victory, and argues that a peace achieved through a victory by one side or the other would rest on quicksands, because the vanquished would only strive to even the score someday. The belligerents must make a rational give-and-take peace, and the powers of the world must preserve it. No nation should seek to extend its rule over any other. All nations should be united with a common purpose and in the common interest. Woodrow talked with Mr. House about his idea. Mr. House was wild about it. Says it's the greatest thing that the president has ever done. The American Embassy, London. January 16. I've been given a cipher dispatch containing the speech which the president's due to make on the 22nd. It contains the sentence... It must be a peace without victory. I don't know what to make of this. Seems meaningless to me. The secretary who first received the dispatch suspected an error in transmission and asked if the words could be verified. The reply came back, no mistake, no mistake. The mistake is monumental. Good Lord. I've already had to explain to the foreign office here that the peace note shouldn't be regarded as placing the two sides on the same moral footing. Now we have this peace without victory. Same idea expressed in a different way. I've written to the president advising him to omit the offending words. But he won't, of course. So the notion of peace without victory, unacceptable to the American ambassador in London, and of course unacceptable to British public opinion as well. The view that Germany absolutely had to be defeated was still very well entrenched. Wilson clearly moved in his own position once the United States became a belligerent power, and his most articulate and best-known statement of what his aims were in the war is the so-called 14 points, which he enunciated in January 1918. Phil, how were they received in the United States? It wasn't that people said these are not what the United States is fighting for. It's just Wilson was engaging in a dialogue that Americans really weren't having when he announces the 14 points. The United States, most Americans support the war, took 
quote-unquote, crush German militarism. Germany's bad. Germany has launched submarine warfare, and it must be reined in. That's why they're fighting. They're not fighting for a higher moral purpose beyond crushing German militarism. And then Wilson comes out with this list of 14 points, some of which Americans would have no problem with, such as freedom of the seas, which is a long-standing American point, some of which hardly anyone had thought about, such as a League of Nations. There had been very little, if any, discussion of a powerful world body emerging out of the First World War, and that's crucial to Wilson, and some of which are just weirdly partisan politics. The one about free trade, that's the Democratic Party. The Republicans have been a protectionist party. So that's Wilson writing into the 14 points partisan politics. So I think Americans look at them, they agree with some points, they disagree with others, but nobody beyond Wilson, and I would say some strong Wilsonian supporters, see the 14 points as somehow a clear set of principles for which the United States is fighting and on which the peace should be based. On the whole, the 14 points went down pretty well here in Britain, partly because three days before, David Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, had spoken to the Trades Union Congress and delivered a very similar program to the one the president was due to announce three days later, which no doubt miffed Wilson a bit. The one thing, of course, Lloyd George did not mention was freedom of the seas, which was a bone of contention between Britain and the United States. British sea power was vital to Britain's understanding of how it would fight this war, was fighting this war, and remained absolutely cardinal to Britain's understanding of its own security in a post-war world. And it's interesting you mentioned the League of Nations, Phil, as something thrown in and away at the last minute and not having much purchase. Lloyd George also mentioned the League of Nations, but seems similarly to have been averse to the idea, although, of course, its origins as an idea lie in the United Kingdom rather than in the United States. The League is so important because for Wilson, it's so central. He makes it the last point because he's giving it special emphasis. He's building the 14 points to making the League. And that's an odd point where we see, as Hugh points out, Wilson going his own direction. This is much more of a European idea. When you look at where the League of Nations idea comes from, it's actually something that's being discussed on the continent of Europe before the First World War. So there's more instinctive support for that in places like London, Berlin, and Paris, or Stockholm, than there would be in Des Moines, Detroit, or New Orleans, who couldn't give two figs, and in fact, don't want anything really to do with the world body. So I think, yes, absolutely. And, and that's one of the reasons the 14 points have this interesting reception. I think they're viewed very differently in Europe than they are in the United States. Because there's such an odd collection of points, people can pick and choose and say, these are the ones I think really matter, and other people, you can get rid of some. Well, freedom of the seas, well, we'll forget about that one because we don't like it, but we'll go for uh, free trade. Did Lord Orthcliffe express a view on the 14 points? It's my understanding that they weren't enough for him. He wanted a peace with victory. He wasn't happy with a peace without victory. Lord Northcliffe was hugely influential on the political stage because of the amount of newspapers that he owned. He owned 40% of the morning papers, 45% of the evening papers, and 15% of the Sunday papers. And he had been key earlier in the war in the downfall of Asquith, the previous prime minister, through his reporting on the Shell crisis of 1915. So that's also why we keep coming back to Northcliffe and his views. When you said that they weren't enough for him, you meant, of course, enough for him in terms of victory, but it reminds me, I think it was George 
Clemenceau, the French Prime Minister, rather than Poincaré, the President, who said when he heard of the 14 points, God only had 10 commandments, that <laughs> there was an aspiration here that had gone a little beyond. One of the more remarkable features of the 14 points is that they do become the basis for the German bid for armistice negotiations at the beginning of October 1918. So, formally speaking, they trigger the peace process. So the question must be, why is Germany ready to use that as a basis for negotiation? And if you think in particular of the point of national self-determination, the implications of that for multinational empires, particularly for the Austro-Hungarian Empire and the Ottoman Empire, were considerable. It meant essentially that if they agreed peace with the United States, they were going to see the collapse of their empires definitively. Britain had, Balfour in particular, in fact, had his doubts about the wisdom of that because he felt it was important that Central Europe had a strong Austro-Hungarian empire to balance Germany in order to provide a counterweight. So it took some time for Britain to come to terms and to accept the possibility of the disintegration of the Habsburg Empire. In terms of the 14 points and their impact, why did Germany call for an armistice on the basis of those? Because they'd lost. Japan says it surrenders in the Second World War because it has an atom bomb dropped on it, but that's the end of the war. Well, Germany does not want to ask for an armistice three weeks before, four weeks before. They want to win the war. It's not like they all of a sudden think, these 14 points are amazing. Let's have peace under them. The Germans have lost. And so the government and the army are trying to come up with a way to escape blame and to be able to say, okay, we are going to get out of the war with the best possible terms. But it's not because of any Wilsonian conversion or... You would know better than I would, Hugh, if Ludendorff has a Wilsonian moment in 1918. It's done for practicality. It's true. Ludendorff had slightly lost it by September 1918. The story is that his physician advised him to start singing German folk songs in the bath <laughs> so he could be more relaxed. He was getting a little tense. And indeed, many of his officers thought he'd call for an armistice too soon. It's an important question, though, because, of course, in the aftermath of the Versailles Treaty, the accusation that the Germans level at the terms of the treaty is that we were essentially negotiating on the 14 points and the way that Germany has been made to suffer vastly exceeds the terms which we thought we were entering the negotiation on. I suspect in their fantasy they went back to that January 1917 speech and thought peace without victory is what we might possibly get out of this if we enter a negotiation now. Wilson had said by then, by September 1918, that he would not do a deal with the Kaiser and he would not do a deal with Prussian militarists. The Germans had affected what they call a revolution from above to create the appearance of a constitutional monarchy before entering the negotiations. So there may have been a hope that they might have been less harshly dealt with by the United States as well as by other powers at Versailles as a result. But if so, of course, they were to be disappointed. It is relevant because as we move on to our third section, which is to think about the legacy of this, the legacy of Wilsonianism, the legacy of the United States entry into the old world, the new world coming to the rescue of the old as it does in 1917, again and again we come up with the point that Wilson, in inverted commas, failed, that the Treaty of Versailles, which becomes 
pivotally associated with him. He's greeted when he arrives in France as though he is the equivalent of a football star in terms of the popular acclaim that he receives in January 1919. He negotiates the terms of the treaty with, of course, the other leading statesmen of the day, the Big Four, and returns to the United States and the Senate rejects the terms of the treaty and refuses to support the League of Nations. Even today, you will get repeated the line that Wilson's ambition, the terms of the peace settlement, so affront Germany that it leads to the rise of Hitler, that it's a victor's peace, not a peace without victory. In the New York Times on the 6th of April 2017, one of the very few press commentaries in the United States on the centenary of the entry, or the centennial, I should say, in an American context, one commentator remarked that without Wilson, there would have been no Second World War. So what is Wilson's legacy? Let's hear, first of all, the audio clip, which is the final speech of Enter the Peace Broker. It's Walter Hines Page, the US ambassador to London, speaking. Take it on the run, on the run, on the run. Hear them calling you and me, every son of liberty. Hurry right away, no delay, go today. Make your daddy glad to have had such a lad. Tell your sweetheart not to pine, to be proud her boy's in line. The American Embassy, London. War will invigorate us. It will wake us up and shake us up. We need this war just as much as the Germans need taking down. War will end our isolation. It will make us less promiscuously hospitable to every kind of immigrant. It will re-establish our true heritage. It will revive our manhood. It will make us a great seafaring nation, like Britain. Five or ten years from now, or sooner, alas, the dead will be forgotten. The suffering will be a mere memory. The fields will recover their bloom, and life for many will go on much as before. But America can learn from the war become greater, stronger. We can cultivate those manly qualities required in wartime. We can resolve to be true to our traditions and ancestry. We can free ourselves from our isolationist, land-lubberish thinking. Build ships, 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 and more ships, and still more. Troop ships, food ships, munition ships, auxiliary ships, wooden ships, steel ships, little ships, big ships, ships without number. We can sail them to the ends of the oceans and dominate the world, both in trade and in political ideology. But as well as ships, as well as expeditionary forces and loans to the Allies at a low rate of interest, we must make the moral issue clear. We speak of the wrongs that have been done to us, but injury has also been done to our ideals. If we value democracy in the world, this is the chance to further it. 
No more dreams about peace and conferences and leagues for the enforcing of peace and other intellectual diversions. This is war, and we must fight it in earnest. Well, the presumption is that Walter Hines Page was not in sympathy with Woodrow Wilson, and equally Wilson was not terribly happy about his ambassador in London. Mm. What, Phil, was Wilson's vision of a new world order? This is a very important question. The League is the foundation of it. In many ways, I think we put too much stress on issues like national self-determination versus self-government. Wilson wants democracy. He wants borders approximately drawn so that countries are, if possible, ethnic states. But he's not hard and fast on this. He's willing to compromise on that. His ultimate view of the war is that it needs to change the way the world does business. And it must establish this League of Nations. This is interestingly one where Page is in some ways more out of the mainstream, one would argue, than Wilson. One thing that needs to be understood is most Americans are not anti-League. That's a fallacy that has happened after the First World War. Most Americans would be very happy to join a league. If you look at the United States Senate, three quarters of it, even 80% of it, would actually have voted to join a league in a certain form. The fight is over what kind of league the United States will join. And that's the problem that comes out. There is a Wilsonian league. That gets about 40% of the Senate. That's a very strong league. And then there's another 40% of the Senate that would support something more like the United Nations today. What does not happen is they never get together because Wilson orders his backers not to support the weaker league. Woodrow Wilson is the person who actually kills off the United States joining the League of Nations, partly because he's lost his mind. He has a major stroke, which, from what we can tell, really affects his thinking. He always thinks he's right. I mean, Wilson has a bit of a Christ complex. He's convinced of his own rightness, and having a stroke does not help that. And what Wilson really believes is his view of the League is so important that when the American people are given a choice to vote on it in 1920, they will have to back his vision of the League. So he's the one who actually refuses to let the League pass when it could, for a weaker league, because he wants to go whole hog for the big league. And he just has no understanding of American politics at this point. And he disastrously gets it wrong. Americans don't reject the league in 1920. They just don't really care that much about it. And I think that's what comes out. So what you're saying, really, is that the argument that America broke with isolation in 1917 and then resumed isolationism after the war is really unsustainable. I mean, at the heart of this is in 1915, Wilson as president says America first. Trump is not the first user of that phrase, but then argues that America first means a globally engaged America. So where is the story of American isolation? The ending of American isolationism is a process between 1890 and 1947. Everyone at the time thinks, you know, America is getting a little less isolationist. Oh, it's getting involved in China. Oh, it's getting involved in the Pacific. Oh, it's getting involved in the First World War. I think Wilson is trying to push that process along, perhaps a bit more dramatically than the American people are. By rejecting Wilson, the United States is not returning to isolationism. 
it's more than happy to remain internationally engaged in a way that the American people are comfortable with. It certainly is happy to trade. It is certainly happy to take part in international discussions. It helps negotiate, right after the First World War, the most successful naval arms control agreements in world history. It's just that we judge American isolationism, I think, or we judge the rejection of the League by too harsh a standard. We don't understand that Wilson is pushing too much. But this is not a return to isolationism. It's a rejection of a plan that American people have never supported to this time. Alice, how do you see this question of isolation? One of the consequences of American troops coming to Europe is the bringing of American culture. But is that American culture globally engaged? Is there a cultural dimension to this relationship? Absolutely. It's very interesting hearing the different perspectives on this. I'm coming to this as a cultural historian, and the cultural links between Britain and America in this period, I think, are strengthening. The 20th century is the American century. It's the century when America assumes world power socially and politically, and that is articulated in various ways through culture, through some of these wonderful songs, over there, we won't be home till it's over, over there. That's the idea of America coming over to save the old world from the mess it's got itself into. I think there were many links between the Brits and the Americans in this period, between the idea that the Americans still were, a number of them hyphenated Americans, they were German-Americans, Scandinavian-Americans, that was still an important part of their identity, that legacy, that sentimental attachment to Europe. And a number of American ideals and institutions were based on European ideals. But what's interesting to me as a cultural historian is that the American cultural legacy of the war seems to be through the lost generation of writers, people like Gertrude Stein, Ernest Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, who said that one of the biggest regrets of his life he wrote in the 30s was that he hadn't got overseas during the war. It's interesting to me that all of those writers were in Europe. They're in London, they're in Madrid, they're in Rome, they're in Paris. And so we have a kind of interlinking of the British and the American cultural legacies throughout the 1920s. Something I'm working on right now is why don't we think of the American cultural production of the war as an important moment in American culture throughout the 20th century. In Britain, every schoolchild will study Blunden, Graves, Sassoon. They will be deeply ingrained in their culture. Whereas in America, there has been no poor fussel. There's been no the Great War in American memory. And that, to me, is surprising because actually at the time, okay, it wasn't a total war. It was 19 months of American engagement. But every star and writer and artist would have been involved in this. It means something that Charlie Chaplin, who was the biggest film star in the world in 1918, took time out of his movie-making schedule to make a film called The Bond, where he is promoting the Third Liberty Loan bond. And he funded that film out of his own pocket and went on to make Shoulder Arms, where he takes his popular tramp character and puts him into the trenches. Edith Wharton was in Paris. She started up war charities and wrote back to America with reports of what she was seeing. I mean, this was a really important moment. It's a real mystery to me why there hasn't been more engagement with this. Right. Phil, you want to come in on that? Well, I think it's going to be, and then the Second World War comes and destroys it. They do think in the 1920s, this is going to be the great formative war, that every school child will read this side of paradise. This will be this formative book in American literature. But then the Second World War comes, and that overwhelms American culture. And I think they just can't go back. But the cultural exchanges are extraordinarily interesting. What Alice is saying just now about the arrival here, of course, so many of those American soldiers who come 
go to France, they don't come by way of Britain. It's not like D-Day in 1944, where they're all, you know, oversexed and over here and all that. Actually, they're oversexed and over in France, mm-hmm. and they arrive in Brest and Saint-Nazaire. So this year, the French are paying a great deal of attention to the arrival of American troops. And you think of the interchange in Paris in the 1920s between American mm-hmm. and French culture, you realize just how that can work through. We're getting dangerously close to a phrase I hate, which is soft power. Yeah, uh, <laughs> but let's go there now we've got so close. Judging this in a longer term perspective, American and European cultural exchanges have remained enormously important throughout the 20th century. Has it also been equally important for American presidents that they have engaged with the thinking of the president who got them there in the first place, that Wilsonian influences have continued to run through American thinking on its international relations, that democratic values, the promotion of liberalism, the promotion of multilateralism, these are the key ideas of Wilson, that that is something that every American president since has had to subscribe to? In many ways, of course, that is the thing about Wilson that is most important is that even Americans who would not think of themselves as Wilsonian are drawn to a lot of Wilsonian rhetoric. Americans love to feel they're different. They love to feel that they're doing things for a higher moral purpose when they're not. And they like to justify their international policy based on a different set of ideals from bad Europeans that the United States is doing things for a higher reason or for, you might say, for less self-interest. Uh, and that's from before Wilson to after. I mean, Wilson does not create this rhetoric in the United States. This can go McKinley in the Spanish-American War up to Donald Trump will say, I had a piece of chocolate cake and saw those poor children who died and I had to do something. That's a Wilsonian kind of moral rhetoric. And so in that ways, even though Wilson now we view him as a failure, Wilson's rhetoric is something that very much lives to this day, and you might say that's his greatest legacy more than something like the First World War or the League of Nations. The thought of Trump as Wilsonian mm. might be a good point to widen the discussion. Wilson, a reluctant engager in the old world. Trump, apparently an isolationist, increasingly looking less yeah. isolationist. One of the consequences of great power is it's very hard, actually, to detach yourself from the rest of the world. I would propose that we widen out the discussion. We go to Q&A. Are you happy with that? So it is your turn to come back to us. And there's a question right there. I'm just fascinated by this notion of the League of Nations. In what sense is it direct descendant of the concept of Europe, which, of course, when... Gray tried to invoke it all the way back in the summer of 1914. The failure of that meant that war was definitely on. I'm not sure whether it was a direct descendant or whether it was a significantly new concept. Thank you very much. A good question. So the issue is, in July 1914, Srebrenica Gray tried to prevent the outbreak of war by suggesting that the great powers re-invoked the concert system, which had established peace in 1815, that they meet round a table and discuss. The Germans rejected that idea. It didn't happen. Arguably, it was too late. It might not have worked, but at least the idea was invoked. Is that the forerunner of the League of Nations, or is the League of Nations something qualitatively different? Phil, are you prepared to take that one on? 
Wilson would have died rather than said that he is doing the concert of Europe. He is trying to establish clear blue water between what his idea of the league is and the way the Europeans have done business in the past. That's not to say there isn't a connection, but he would have rejected that connection. We do have one problem in understanding Wilson's league in that even though he talks about it endlessly, he's not that specific about it either. He talks about having this international body and he wants it to matter, and yet on the fundamental question that really gets Americans exercised, can the League order American troops into power by League fiat without congressional authorization? Wilson is actually very vague. He never fully answers that question. He thinks that he can answer the question probably for political reasons, so we don't know quite how powerful his League would have become. It might have been the United States had uh, joined the League that Wilson wrote, and then the League would have functioned exactly the way it did in the 20s, just with the United States in it, and had no ability to prevent the Second World War. It's very easy to make that rejection of that league a, a bigger thing than it is, because Wilson himself can be vague on it. I just feel instinctively the American decision not to join the league after the Great War emasculated it and throttled it at birth. I think just to go back to your original question, one point would be that Wilson's original idea about the League is that only democratic powers could be members. And it's the great powers, if you like, of the 1815 concert system, particularly Britain, who say, hang on, we need to have other states involved in this, otherwise it won't work. It needs to be broader than that. Britain, of course, also has an interest in the dominions, including India, being included, and nobody could claim at that juncture that India was being democratically governed. So Wilson starts, if you like, with a grander idea and, and compromises and gets closer. It's worth perhaps pitching it forward and saying, of course, that although the League fails self-evidently in the 1930s, the principles are there when the United Nations is established after the Second World War. And picking up Phil's point about every president feeling they have to pay obeisance in some respects to Wilsonian principles, FDR, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, absolutely does so when the United Nations is established. So without the United States, it is hard to see how it is going to work adequately if it is to be a global rather than a European system. And remember, of course, where it starts eroding outside Europe, not within, initially, with Japan and China and then Abyssinia and Italy. Let's have another question. What if he hadn't have decided to join the war? Right. Counterfactual question. What if he, Woodrow Wilson, had not decided to join the war? I think there are two parts of that question. One is, is it Woodrow Wilson's decision or is America committed by April 1917 anyway? So we might answer that question. Alice, do you want to have a go at that? I think in terms of whether it was Wilson or the American public, I would say by April 1917, the American public was increasingly won over to the idea of the American war. There'd been lots and lots of protesting of anti-war propaganda as well as sentiment among the American people, led in part by the women's suffrage campaign led by Jane Addams, led by a variety of other multi-ethnic groups. And actually, as the atrocity reports came in from Europe, as Northcliffe was going backwards and forwards to the States, as they heard their reporting from Americans over in Paris, there was an increasing sense that they had to join this war. So I would say they would have gone in, I think. My sense is that America is united. 
at the moment of entry, even allowing for a large German and Irish contingent, of course. Of I've changed my mind on this over the years. I originally thought that actually Wilson always wanted to get in the war and drag the American people along, but the more I studied it, I think it's the other way. This nonsense about, say, the 1916 election being run on he kept us out of war, I went and read the newspapers. Actually, it's not that big an issue. They're much more interested in domestic legislation. And their general view of the war, of course, is a positive one. The United States is getting filthy rich between 1914 and 1916. The war is not a bad thing. I think that needs to be understood. There's some crocodile tears about dead Europeans, but on the whole, <laughs> the war has been a very positive development for the United States economically. So when the Germans start being very beastly in January 1917, the American people are conditioned, I would argue now, ahead of Wilson to say, okay, we're going to go to war now. The Germans have revealed what they are. We've always known they're bad. They're now being extra bad with the submarines. And we want war. So if you look at public opinion in terms of the press, that's out in front of Wilson in February and March of 1917, saying we need to get into war. So I think the United States was probably going to get into war because the tripwire had been set up in 1915. Now, had the United States not got in the war, that's the question. Mm -hmm. that one. I'm a Mahanite. Germany still doesn't rule the seas, so this notion of a dominant Germany ruling the continent, I don't see. I think you end up with a negotiated peace with Germany in quite a good situation, but you have the world's greatest expert on this next to me, so I would rather hear what Hugh had to say about that than my own views. The view of the guy writing the New York Times in 2017 is would have ended with a negotiated peace if we, the Americans, had stayed out. I think that the Entente powers, the Allied powers, would have won the war eventually. The thing that worries them after the Russian Revolution is will the home front hold? That's the much bigger issue with evident signs of war weariness, not just in Russia but in the other countries. Remember that the harvest of 1916 is very bad. The food situation across Europe in early 1917 is very bad. That's part of the reason for the Russian Revolution itself. So there is this concern that actually, even if we can win the war by 1918, and certainly they know after American entry they'll win it by 1919, that actually before that there'll be domestic collapse. Now that won't be confined to Britain and France and Italy. It'll include Germany and Austria-Hungary as well, for sure, mm. which also implies a negotiated settlement. But the balance of resources favors the Allied powers, even without the United States. And Phil's point about this being incredibly good for American business means that actually the Federal Reserve Board's warning of November 1916 couldn't actually have held because their investments were at stake. So I think the resources of the United States would have been available. One of the German concerns is they're a de facto belligerent effectively already because they're contributing so much to the war effort. And what do you care about the US Army at that stage, mm. a piddling contribution? It'll be a very big contribution. If we think of the 20th century as the American century, we can also call that the capitalist century. I think the point about the monetary side of it is hugely important. We're talking about people like JP Morgan, the banker in New York, about DuPont, munitions about the Bethlehem steel, the munitions being made there. Of course, the Americans are going to want to join the war if they will all get richer by doing so. A slightly left-field question. How much was the German attempt to bribe Mexico to invade America? How much was that a factor, if at all, in actually making America come in? It's not at all. It's a very relevant question. So a question about the Zimmerman telegram, which is the telegram that the German foreign ministry sent 
to Mexico before the United States is in the war, offering an alliance to Mexico if the United States does enter the war. And the deal is that Mexico will get Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. Even more. Even more. (laughs) Everything they lose in 1848. Alice, this is also part of the propaganda story, isn't it? That this is part of a nefarious British plot to bring the United States in because it's British intelligence that intercepts the Zimmerman telegram and presents it to the American government. Is it important to bring America into the war? Definitely. Same way that the sinking of the Lusitania. I think we can have it on a passage of things that gradually change American sentiment towards entry. And I think the propaganda efforts both in Britain and America demonising the Germans for this move and demonising the British to some extent is a really important moment on that step stone towards war. Phil, what's your verdict on Zimmer and Telegram? I disagree, sorry on that. Most American press are supporting the war before Zimmerman. So Zimmerman switches hardcore resistors that aren't yet ready to go to war, but the general bulk of the American press has already come along to that idea. And I also don't see it playing personally that much within Wilson's own cabinet or Wilson's mind. I don't think that this is Woodrow Wilson is going to stay out of the war, reads the Zimmerman telegram and has an epiphany. I think they look at it as a clumsy move by the Germans, but doesn't alter the fundamental problem that Wilson has decided the United States has to get involved in the war so that there is a clear outcome where Germany is crushed. That would be my own view. There's an important distinction here, isn't there, between the American president and the American people. We've talked a bit about it already, but the American president has tried to negotiate an end to the war in December 1916 and failed. And the consequence of his failure is a realization that if the United States is to be involved in the creation of a better and new world order, then the United States will have to be a belligerent. And that if that's the case, that means fighting, admittedly as an associate, with the Entente Pass, if not an ally, because he is by this stage, and the Zimmerman telegram is part of this, obviously because it's part of the evidence, convinced of German militarism and the threat that it presents. I think perhaps the most important thing that comes out of it is the growth of anti-German sentiment. There was a lot of anger in America towards German-Americans. There were efforts, I think, to restrain Americans from setting upon their German neighbours. Actually, if we're going to rank the most important moments, I think the Lusitania is still the most important because it has emotive appeal in the way that the Zimmerman telegram doesn't have. I'm sure we've all seen that very important image of Enlist with the woman sinking with her baby. That had a much more important emotive appeal to the American people than the Zimmerman telegram where there were no casualties. Lusitania was 128 American civilians. That's what pulled on the heartstrings of the American people, I think. As you said, Wilson didn't get the League of Nations that he wanted. He also didn't get the entirety of the Treaty of Versailles that he wanted. He didn't get the Adriatic settlement he wanted. He didn't get the treaties with Bulgaria and Turkey that he wanted. How do you explain the totality of America's failure? Was Wilson simply clueless in his conduct of international relations? So a question about the peace settlements. Remember that there is more than one peace settlement negotiated in Paris between 1919 and 1921, separate peace agreements with each of the enemy belligerents, and the United States is fully party to Versailles. Wilson's there and leaves the moment the Versailles Agreement, the one with Germany, is signed, is no longer in Paris when the others are negotiating. It's a great question. It's interesting. We just assume the United States can dictate, but why? 
it's a classic example of power. The United States is, all right, the largest economy in the world with its unmobilized army, but that army is not going to stay in Europe. The French are. The British are going to be here. And when it comes time to negotiating around the table in Paris, the United States can't enforce a settlement on Europe. The U.S. Army is going home. So actually, you're going to have to listen to the French because the French are going to demand certain things and the United States can't simply say no to them. So it becomes a, a case of give and take. And the most disastrous concessions Wilson makes have nothing to do with Europe. They're about China. This is one of the secret treaty things. He really suffers a diplomatic loss about the former German empire in China. And that plays very poorly in the United States. And it's simply because Britain and Japan have signed a secret treaty. And the British back the Japanese claim to the German Empire in China. And Wilson is not going to go to war to stop that. So it's odd that we assume Wilson should be able, like Jesus, to ascend into Paris and dictate terms. But he can't. He doesn't have that power. And I think the French and British know that. And they're willing to fight for what they want. It's worth bearing in mind, of course, that between 1919 and 1923, there is war going on throughout Central and Eastern Europe, as well as across much of the rest of what we would now, I suppose, call the Middle East and parts of North Africa and indeed as far as Afghanistan, which means that actually the power of the peacemakers is extraordinarily limited because the situation is changing on the ground. And the fact that the United States Army is actually brought back home faster, for example, than the British Army, makes that point exactly. The scope for military leverage to support the diplomatic story is extraordinarily curtailed. Thank you all so much for coming. You've been a wonderfully attentive audience. Thank you all very much.